Hello and welcome to the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak and dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you in the know on all things Wisconsin. From our palatial offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer, and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get right here, or so we hope, from uh, Team MacGyver. And now, fueled by plenty of coffee, Mountain Dew, and turkey hash, uh, we've got lots of leftovers. It's the (laughs) MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. I am Jeffrey Henderson. I thought you were going to say Chuck Todd. I have no idea. Who I'm Jeff Todd is. Chuck, <laughs> otherwise known as Matt Kittle. Now, I am fueled by green tea. I'm Chris Rochester, and welcome to week three of the MacGyver Report. Thank you, Matt. Bill Osmolsky, our news director, is still in a Thanksgiving food coma, so he's out today. Uh, pinch hitting, uh, yours truly. Uh, and joining us, as always, is... Ola Lasowski, education uh, reporter and writer. And Ola uh, has the big story of the week. Uh, we've you've been making the rounds in the media, uh, even during your vacation break, doing a statewide tour on the report cards for Wisconsin's K through 12 education system. So many different angles to talk about. With it's that. been like Ola Palooza on the radio. It's been it's, <laughs> it's been Ola. Yeah, and people around the state are um, are very interested actually in what you've had to say about their their local schools and what they're up to with DPI. So. Uh, let's dive right into that. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm uh, going to go ahead and give you four stars for that effort. <laughs> um, <laughs> Everyone gets one gold star at least, though, right? Yeah, that's kind of the takeaway, unfortunately. So like we talked about last week, this year's report card showed that zero school districts are failing. That's down from five failing districts last year. And of course, at the same time, there are somehow more failing schools Uh, DPI declared that there are 117 failing schools this year. That's more than last year's 99. So, of course, you know, the first thing is kind of that head scratcher. How do we have fewer failing districts and yet more failing schools? Well, it's magic, of course. It's magic. It's (laughs) DPI magic. It brings us to bureaucrat world, which is what we call it. And so diving right into it, one important number. uh, Statewide, students got 66.7 out of 100 points. That is the state uh, average achievement level. That's the number that we're focusing on, and that's kind of the benchmark for the rest of the schools and districts to be able to compare themselves. That's a solid D in a standard grading format. Yeah, so I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school, a 66 or a 67 out of 100 points meant I was in big trouble. (laughs) Like you said, that's a standard scale. There was a grounding coming, that's for sure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so here in Wisconsin, in, uh, in bureaucrat world, it's not quite the same. It is a little bit different, as Matt mentions. We're dealing with a little bit of magic here. So like Chris says, there are a lot of different ways to cut up these numbers. One way that I think a lot of places have been focusing on is the percent of schools and districts that got three stars or better. Now, if you got three stars, that means you meet expectations, you're doing A-OK, right? So the one way you can look at this is 95% of districts 
got three stars or better. I was just going to say, isn't that the headline that our schools are so great and almost all of them are are doing so well? That right. was the headline. That was yeah. actually the headline. That was the headline. Yeah. But when you're talking about three stars, which is open to interpretation, that doesn't mean that uh, these schools are proficient, does it? Exactly. So even though the headline might say one thing, the the rating might say one thing, one thing I learned after spending a week digging into this num these numbers is that you really have to go back to those proficiency scores. Now, even though uh, the state average is 66-67%, uh, that's, that's our baseline, 44% of kids are proficient in English language arts. Even fewer, 41% are proficient in math. That's the benchmark. That's the meet expectations. Um, you know, and then when you start to look at different districts, ones that we've put a spotlight on in recent years, for example, Milwaukee Public Schools, the biggest school district in the state, more than 76,000 kids attend that district, you start to see proficiency numbers half that, even wow. less than half that. That's embarrassing. It that is. is embarrassing because, first of all, uh, and I know you'll dig a little bit deeper into the numbers, you certainly did with the story, that you can find, by the way, at MacGyverInstitute.com if you're scoring along at home. But take a look at Milwaukee Public Schools. You, you have proficiency numbers in math and in English language arts that barely hit the meter. I mean, what, 15, 20 percent? That's that is an embarrassment, and you and you have that as your number, but still, MPS passes right. in a pass-fail system. That's right. It's so, not a failing school. That's right. So MPS got a two-star rating, meets few expectations. They got one of the very lowest scores out of any district, by far the lowest score out of any district that that's, bi that's so big. Mm -hmm. uh, they got 56 out of 100 points yeah. in achievement overall. But again, that scale doesn't mean so much, right? Because that 56 is what landed them at two stars. What you really want to look at, I think, is that proficiency. Looking at our most recent proficiency number, English language arts, 20% proficient in MPS, 15% proficient in math. So this is a problem. This is an issue. Uh, again, kind of going back to that normal educational experience, you kind of start to realize why that A through F scale is so important. Um, you hate to be mean, though, you and hate say, to be mean. F, failing. You are a failing district because of these terrible proficiency numbers. Well, well, under the DPI system, it's the everybody gets a ribbon, everybody gets a medal, everybody gets a star, and everybody passes. But you know what? At the end of the day, that is a huge disservice. Let's speak for a minute mercenarily, if you will. That's a big disservice to the taxpayer funding this failed system. But it is a huge social injustice. Can I use the term? A you social injustice right. to the students in these failing school districts. And make no uh, bone about it. These are failing school districts. That's right. That's right. You are, in my eyes, you are lying to these kids. 
when you pat them on the back, you tell them they meet expectations, that they're doing just fine. It goes right along with the whole idea that in order to succeed, you have to go get that college degree and that that's the only way you're going to make a name for yourself in this country. What ends up happening? They go along through the educational system, never really highlighted and told, hey, you got a little extra work to do. You're falling behind your peers. What happens? They end up at a university system, get forced to do remedial education and pay full tuition for zero credit. And we wonder why we have such a bad problem with student debt and this country. It's just, it all kind of starts from there. And so one thing I do want to point out too for for people who might see that 44% of kids are proficient or 20% and they they take issue with that number. Um, I understand it. I kind of had the same reaction when I first got into this field. My first thought was, okay, what's going on with that test? Is that the test fault? Is it a good test? Is it too hard? Is it too easy? Whatever, you know, that's that's a good place to start, I think, when you're faced with numbers these bleak. One thing you have to remember, though, keep in mind, Wisconsin students took three different exams in three different years. We voided several years of any chance of being able to compare our student growth and progress year over year because we changed the test so many times. So, I mean, you know, I wasn't around when in, in this area when they were in the process of doing that, but I would certainly hope on the third time around, they finally figured it out with all the stakeholders that they got together. No, we've not we've it. got it's, to believe these numbers at least. Yeah, it's a consistency issue, but the problems run deeper than consistency in the testing. Um, the problems are too myriad for our time on this particular podcast. Right. Yeah. Just the one thing that drives me crazy uh, to back away from the specific numbers is this bureaucratic mindset of if we just call it something else, the problem won't be there anymore. Mm-hmm. It drives me crazy, and the, the problem is still going to be there. These kids' futures are still going to be stunted. They're still going to have these remedial remediation problems but the the bureaucrats get to feel better about themselves. Yeah, in magic DPI land, um, failure is billed as success, of course, but ultimately at the end of the day, that's what's really at stake, the future. Uh, The next generation of of our students, will they be able to compete? And as you note, that's not the case. Now, one final point on what you have found in this study, and it's very interesting, Milwaukee gets a pass because it showed some level of improvement. You know those proficiency scores we talked about in, in math and in English language arts? There was a small degree of progress, and I mean very small, Yep. but because there was that small degree, they don't have to be labeled as a failing district. That, to me, is a failure in the system. That's right, yeah. And so that because they changed the way that they weigh these schools and these districts, one thing to keep in mind, we're not weighing schools and districts against a normative scale of here's the benchmark. Right. We're weighing them against each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons that you see in some ways this data release can be a bit confusing. It can be a bit wonky, if you will, and you kind of shuffle the deck um, where it looks like MPS is doing better or worse, but really you get back to proficiency. Um, They increased their proficiency in English language arts 0.4% over the last year. Math proficiency, half a percent. That's fantastic. They got to continue to grow in in districts. 
you know, at, in districts that are as big as they are with as many underlying issues, both inside and outside of the classroom, I will take growth of any level and you gotta consider it. But really, really, you're lying yeah. to these kids because you cannot call a spade a spade. And what chance are we going to have of, of improving this if you can't call a spade a spade? Well, I believe they call it the new math, at least they did uh, years ago when I was going through the the old system. There was the new math emerging. Now let us turn our attention to the old math. Very, <laughs> very, old, very old, very new depression <laughs> era math. Uh, it's the math of minimum markup. That was another big story last week. Of course, it's a big story when we have Black Friday and Black Friday mm -hmm. sales. And for those who are not familiar with minimum markup, in the state of Wisconsin, just know as a consumer, as a buyer of Black Friday goods, or goods at any time really, you are subject to this antiquated old math of a, uh, a law, protectionist law. Well, I went uh, just, um, you know, my, my Black Friday story is that I went shopping on Friday. Uh, so Best Buy opened on Thursday, mm -hmm. and they had a TV for $180. It was a 50-inch sharp. Nice the best deal I've ever seen on a, on a TV like that. And uh, I, I was relieved when I got there on Friday and they were sold out because I was really nervous I'd get that really good deal and be an accessory to that crime. You were tempted, you were gonna be an accomplice there. Right. Uh, you know, absolutely. So I mean, you know, what, what is the minimum markup law for, for those unfamiliar with this obscure law? Is it, It's a Great Depression era law, so it dates back to the 1930s. Uh, it forbids most uh, merchandise from being sold below the cost of the retailer. Uh, and it also requires at the wholesale level, a 3% markup for alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, and gasoline. Alcohol, tobacco, and gasoline should be the name of a convenience store, by the way. It should uh, be. That says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> what do you need? I need alcohol, I need gas, and uh, I need some smokes. Um, and so when you go to the uh, when you go to the convenience store, you also get slapped with an additional retail markup of six percent for the alcohol and the tobacco, and nine point one eight percent markup minimum markup on gasoline. Let me so, ask you the question that's so important that consumers uh, have asked, should be asking, why? Why do we need to mark prices up? Why is it that Wisconsin consumers, technically under the law, have to pay so much more than people in Illinois or Michigan, for instance? Well, I think a long, long, long time ago, uh, this the, some, well, charitable explanation is that lawmakers... It is a time for charity. Uh, it's that time of year, so we'll be really nice to the lawmakers from the 1930s. Mm -hmm. They wanted to apparently protect small mom and pop shops, or at least that's what the explanation's become. Uh, you know, I look back at my hometown, they're, you know, the, the malls and the Walmarts and everything are thriving. And so did this law ever even accomplish what it was supposedly intended to do to save the mom and pop shops? It certainly hasn't stymied the growth of Walmart all around the state. So uh, what it really does, though, is it, let's be real, it's walls off competition. It's a protectionist policy. Yeah, no, 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 about it. Ola, you probably saw the same thing that we all saw. I was driving back home after putting on the feed bag Thursday, and man, what a <laughs> feed bag that was. Still recovering from the deviled eggs. I don't want to talk about that. It's a, it's a, it's a tough story, um, and it did not have a happy ending. 
But you saw the parking lots at places like Walmart and Target and Best Buy and all of these, you know, these places. That's right. That it's no longer the Black Friday sales, right? It's Thursday night because we're all, right. we all eat the turkey. We're all stuffed. We lay around. We watch football. There's only so much bad NFL football you can watch. <laughs> there are only so many relatives you can put up with. Now it's time to <laughs> shop, get out of the house, that sort of thing. So now we have the, the Black Thursday sales or right. whatever it's going to be. Right. But you see that, as Chris talked about, you know, the doorbuster deals, the big screen televisions for $180, way below uh, cost, way right. below the actual price. That's illegal. How come we are not seeing uh, these stores being cited on Black Friday or Black Thursday or Cyber Monday or whatever it is these days? Why is that? You know, that's a good question, Kittle. I don't have the answer uh, to it, unfortunately. Um, but I think it does speak to the larger point of, man, do we have so many laws on these books yes. that are just systematically and ignored or completely inconsistently applied. Well, that's it. That's that, it. That's the big thing, and they are. And we're we're being facetious. If you see the story, we had fun with it, of course, as we always do. I had a great time on Photoshop. If you go to the go to our <laughs> website and take a look. Poor at Jeffrey. Poor Jeffrey from <laughs> Toys R Us is is in the uh, in the hokey in the, the, tar the Target dog and the, the Walmart. The yeah. frowning Walmart symbol are all behind bars on our website. So if you're wondering what that's all about, uh, you wonder no more. But we have a good laugh at it. But really, ultimately, consumers pay. Now, you, are you going to go? Are you going to go to jail because you took advantage of a retailer's pricing? No. But a retailer could, under the law, be fined for offering deep, deep discounts, and that's just absurd. What they're saying to you is, hey. If you want to compete and offer a better price than your uh, competitor, well, right. you're going to pay a fine for that. Well, but no, not on Black Friday. Where it happens, of course, is where we have, for instance, petroleum wars on the border in Michigan and Wisconsin. That. That's why we can't have a dollar thirty-five cent gasoline, at where they can do that in Michigan because we have these artificial pricing structures in place. Well, and it, we, we saw, you talk about competition, we, t we saw Meyer come in, to try to come into the state to compete, mm -hmm. and another, one of their co existing competitors used this process to complain about the price of their coffee, I think it was. Right. And we've seen other, other examples like it, um, and I think we will continue to see uh, examples like this unless the legislature can touch this what seems to be a third rail in the Wisconsin capital. It's just absurd. There was a lawmaker, and there are a few lawmakers who really do want to um, reform this antiquated 1930s law. State Representative Dale Coenga is one of them. In fact, this past summer, he brought together some legislation. It was a package of legislation that included a move to a flat tax in Wisconsin, but it also included at least limiting the impact of minimum markup law and begin to do that. I had a conversation with him last week and we talked about Wisconsin may be open for business. Indeed it is. A lot of reforms opening Wisconsin to business, a lot of regulatory reforms. But we're not always open to the free market. We have too many protectionist sort of things. We have too many carve-outs for special interest. It should be everybody competes best ideas, best prices, best marketplace. That's what uh, Representative Coyang is talking about. Republicans in particular mm -hmm. need to get back to that notion of real free market 
conservative uh, point of view. Well, this seems to be an issue that a lot of people in the building I'm looking at right now don't want to even talk about. So good for Dale for, for, for getting out ahead of this issue. We need voices who bring common sense to the minimum markup issue. Well, our, our challenges with education and DPI bureaucrats aren't going away anytime soon. And sadly, it doesn't look like uh, even with Dale's efforts, the minimum markup is going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, but another issue that keeps dogging us has to do with the free marketplace of ideas and speech. Uh, but free speech won recently at UW-Stevens Point. Matt Kittle has more. This is the MacGyver News Minute. Here's Matt Kittle. In the left's war on free speech, common sense finally won. University of Wisconsin Stevens Point administrators last week overturned the campus student government's decision to deny a young conservative group's request to become a recognized student organization. The campus student affairs office made the announcement that Turning Point USA would be recognized as a campus group at noon Friday. The announcement cited media scrutiny over the student senate vote November 9th and a failure of the body to reconsider its decision at its November 16 meeting, which Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs Al Thompson had requested. Student government followed the advice of left-wing students who described Turning Point as an alt-right hate group. The organization on more than 1,000 campuses nationwide believes in free markets, free people, and limited government, and free speech, something that's becoming harder to find on college campuses. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. Yeah, this is an interesting story, um, and unfortunately, it's not a singular story. UW Stevens Point became the national talking point of the First Amendment fight on college campuses. And we have the militant left once again trying to go after a mainstream conservative group simply its right to exist on a college campus. I mean, this is just atrocious. We have entered, uh, uh, I don't think it's Aldous Huxley's brave new world. I don't think there's anything brave about it. I right. think it's a cowardly world of uh, trying to control speech, and, and, and it's frightening. Well, and it's, uh, so Turning Point USA, every, you know, not everyone knows what, what this group is because it's a, a mainly a young conservatives organization. Uh, let's break, let's put it exactly how it is. Some conservative students at Stevens Point who attend that college wanted to establish a branch of this group on their campus. It's a mainstream conservative group with intelligent, smart, normal conservatives. It's not the alt-right, it's not racist, but the student government, uh, after listening to a diatribe of just the most ridiculous stuff from from students opposed to this group, just reflexively opposed to Turning Point being on their campus, decided to reject the, the petition. Yeah, and, you, you dug into the meeting minutes Yeah, when they decided to, the, the student senate decided to vote uh, the will of their constituents, so to speak. By the way, uh, most of the students on campus didn't know this meeting was going on, and the people who did were, you know, the adamantly against any conservative message on campus. But you looked at the meeting minutes. What what were they saying in defense of trying to stifle free speech, conservative speech in this case? It wasn't uh, all that compelling. Uh, two of the things that stood out to me was one person said, uh, boy, you're really... Uh, you have this, so Turning Point has this Victims of Communism project. 
And one speaker was very concerned that that's really mean towards communists <laughs> and asked, are you going to be open to having communists in your group? And I think, you know what, maybe, maybe they would be open to having communists in their group, but is that a reason you're being mean towards this, this regime that's responsible for millions of people's deaths are all around the world? That was a, a pretty absurd question. And then it was just, yes. we, we've been to your Facebook page and we see your, your placards that say socialism sucks and we see this hashtag socialism sucks. That's, that's really mean towards socialists. We don't feel like this is going to be an inviting group when it comes to us socialists here on the campus. There's just no consideration for, you know, they, logic, what, what that reality, reality looks like. Do yeah. the, are the conservatives maybe offended by the the socialism of these students? They don't. You don't know it because they've never gotten up and lined up and behind a mic to oppose one of these groups that on the left. Listen, I'll jump in with uh, something my dad always says. Our listeners may not be aware of this, but both of my parents escaped Polish communism when the Berlin Wall was still up in the in the mid 80s and they fled to America to find freedom. One thing my dad constantly repeats to me, he says, Ola, you meet anyone your age who really thinks that uh, socialism or that communism stuff is cool? Why don't you tell them a little bit about our experiences? Why don't you tell them a little bit about all the people we knew who disappeared and were never seen again and all the freedoms that just were not around over there? And the one thing he always repeats, hey, you got a kid your age who's into communism? All right, send him to China for one week. One week. Absolutely. We'll see how you feel. Well, you cover education. You cover the university beat. And, I mean, that's the thing. And it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast with these grades that are given out by DPI, you know, the report right. cards that come out. Are we failing to teach history? Any? I mean, is that one of the big problems? Because you have young people coming to college campuses saying, oh, communism, that that worked. Yeah. There, there is a complete disregard if not disconnect from history and it's right. it's not like this was a hundred years ago yeah. yeah we I mean it's a hundred years ago this year that the Bolsheviks came to power and the rise of the communists but I mean it wasn't that long ago when the Berlin Wall was was knocked down and you had people like your parents who were trying to escape the That's oppression right. take a look at North Korea my goodness yeah. look at what happens if you try to escape that awful place they shoot you dead. That's right. And none of that seems to, re why? Why is that? One thing to wrap up this segment, uh, all my young 20-somethings, all my friends uh, my age who are thinking about this issue, sometimes all you need is a little context. Yeah, they desperately need Fortunately, um, Fortunately, the university administration uh, I'd hate to put it this way, but the adults stepped in and, and fixed this. And we have a good story about free speech in this state. And you can hear the MacIver News Minute live on News Talk 1130 WISN every Tuesday and Thursday. That's right. Thanks, guys. Great work there. Very interesting stuff. And while it seems like everyone these days is talking about free speech on campus, let's go into our next segment, stories that deserved more coverage in the mainstream media. First things first, Chris, uh, we got some new job creation numbers recently. Tell us about those. Right. It was a short week and what passes for a slow news week. Um, but one story that's flown under the radar, and it did get some state journal coverage, so good for them.
but it'll continue to fly under the radar, I think, um, are the, the good jobs numbers for Wisconsin. I'll quote here from their story. Wisconsin enjoyed increases in private sector jobs across both months, October and September, uh, and this is in the context of despite kind of a, a sluggish, sluggish national job growth picture because of the hurricanes and all that sort of thing. But uh, uh, Wisconsin also set new records for the number of private sector jobs in the state in September and October. Uh, October, 9,500 private sector jobs came to the state according to new numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the number of jobs in the private sector right now in Wisconsin is two, just over 2.5 million, uh, which is the highest it's ever been for the state of Wisconsin. And you know, 3,400 manufacturing jobs, 4,300 jobs in uh, professional services and business services. And another thing to cap off this, uh, this good news is that surrounding states, not so good for the surrounding states, surrounding states uh, did not fare as well in October. Illinois gained 5,200 private sector jobs. Iowa lost 1,100, Michigan lost 500, and Minnesota, get this, Minnesota lost 5,000 jobs. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Isn't that amazing? Mm. But uh, of course the story, uh, I give them kudos for covering this, but they had, they have to include the never-ending talking point that no story about jobs can be without. That has to do with the 250,000 jobs pledged, but that goes I without even saying. I knew you were going to say <laughs> 250 every time. Yeah, uh, it's remarkable the more success that is created. And remember this, I think this is an important point, and I'll close on this, that these jobs, probably many of them do not happen without changing the landscape in Wisconsin. The reputation as a high tax state, property taxes, corporate taxes, business taxes, income taxes. We got a long way to go on uh, at least two of the, the three fronts. Property tax is still a long way to go, but you know a lot better on that front. We got a long way to go, but a lot has changed over the last seven years in this state from January of 2011. That's when you start to see the success of job creation. Job creation is the end of that story. The beginning of that story is setting the stage for the creation uh, so that job creators can go out there and do what they do. Government doesn't right. create jobs right. once right. again. It's businesses. Businesses are doing that. They're able to do that. Government can help by lifting the yoke off the neck of business. That's right. And I think, Matt, your uh, highlighted story that deserved more coverage is on this very issue. It is indeed. Um, it Listen, tax reform and the Republican legislation to reform taxes and the tax cut, that's been widely covered. But there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal this week on uh, tax reform, growth and the deficit. And I won't go over everything, but there has been a constant spin, if not an outright lie, about what the proposed tax cut at the House and the Senate would mean and what it would mean ultimately to the deficit, that this would be a huge deficit balloon. But we have a Congressional Budget Office, for instance, trying to put together numbers that the left is relying on to try to create this narrative of a, you know, a negative, this deficit um, that would continue to, to climb because of the, the tax cut. It's just simply not true. It's based on a phony assumption, a static assumption of economic growth. And we've actually been down this road, as the Wall Street Journal points out. The tax cuts of 2003, for instance, where you had the, you know, the, the, the congressional 
budget office predicting we would lose this much revenue or it would only reflect this much revenue, it turned out to be significantly higher. And I think that's an important point that will be unfortunately lost in this debate. Um, you cannot have static numbers in trying to set up a model for how this will ultimately impact. You, the economy is dynamic. Uh, the notion that it could grow under average under 3% is just not borne out by history. Even in the Obama years, which had the slowest post-recession growth, it still did well above the sorts of averages that we're talking about. So it's a kind of a cautionary tale as the big uh, the talk of the Senate right. movement goes on this week. Uh, and, and really take a close look at the numbers, and the Wall Street Journal did a great job at doing that. They did. They're predicting economic growth, of, or the CBO is predicting economic growth of 1.9% per year. I mean, th this is a great editorial, and I love it. We're policy wonks here. Um, if you have an average growth rate of 2.4%, problem takes care of itself. Exactly. Over a 10-year period, if you have the basic, if you have an average of 3%, which also factors in that when you do tax cuts of this size, that that infuses more money into the economy. It right. builds that economy, it builds GDP, and that is not taken into consideration in the Congressional Budget Office numbers. Right, and I know the Senate's just dying for my advice. <laughs> my job is, my job is, you know, I'm supposed to be the guy who kind of has a pulse on what people really care about or what they think. Oh yeah. Um, we're, and we're from flyover country. We're not from the, the, the proverbial swamp. My advice is this, stop trying to appease critics of tax cuts and tax reform. You're never going to do it because you're, you're, you're always going to get the class warfare rhetoric, the anemic, pathetic arguments about rich versus poor. Stop, yeah. stop trying to appease them. Stop throwing in all this, this, this garbage that- I got bad news for you. Uh, that's going to be coming up this week. <laughs> More <laughs> of that is on the way. Our right. next segment, the week ahead, Matt, I think we've been talking about this for a couple minutes now. Take it away. Yeah, this is a big <laughs> week for, for tax reform. We talk about what's ahead, and a lot of times we'll have this story or that story, this piece of legislation, a lot of times at the Capitol. Let's face it, it's post-Thanksgiving week. It's a slow week at the state Capitol. It's a huge week at the federal Capitol, and tax reform is on the docket for the Senate. The president this week is to meet with uh, uh, Senate members, We've got some reluctant folks out there. There is uh, the push is on to get this done in committee this week and ultimately passage through the Senate. And then you got to go through the reconciliation process. I guess the big question is, do they get something done in the Senate this week? Do they do what President Trump has promised, which is to have tax reform done by Christmas? Well, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, the, the president will meet with the so-called Big Four tomorrow. That's Tuesday. Uh, it may be yesterday for you or whenever you're listening to the podcast, but that's when, uh, that's when we're going to find out if, if something's going to be able to move, if, the dem if any Democrats are movable on this. I, I don't, I'm not very optimistic. This isn't no. 1986 anymore. No, this is all about Republicans. This is all about, now let's face it, we have a senator in this state, Ron Johnson, who has been very critical of the tax reform plan. He's very concerned about uh, corporations benefiting over, um, you know, average uh, uh, small businesses, particularly pass-throughs. Do you think, Ola, that um, Ron Johnson, <coughs> Senator Johnson, can be satisfied eventually, can be appeased in this process? Because 
like we were talking about, you're not going to get Democrats on board. Every right. Democrat's going to be against this. They've got to, they know the math. It's a couple of senators they can lose, and that's it. Is, is, does Johnson finally get on board? I hate doing predictions. <laughs> no, um, it's a good question, Matt. I mean, I think the straight answer here is he kind of has to, right? If, if Republicans can't stand together on comprehensive tax reform of our federal code, what can they stand together on? Right, that's that's kind of what I've been thinking about this whole time. I mean, I understand healthcare, very complicated issue. You can be a conservative and kind of have a lot of different views on that and, and where the state can step in and how. Tax reform, if you don't agree that the code should be shorter, simpler, with lower rates across the board, man, I don't know where you stand. But I've got to say the senator does bring up really good right. points. Yeah. We know how important pass-through businesses are to the economy, both in Wisconsin and nationally. Uh, the majority of businesses today are organized as a pass-through business. So it's a valid point, and I hope they really get into policy details and, and negotiations on this. Do you see Johnson not coming to terms eventually. I mean, the point here, and you're right, Ola, he, he does bring up a lot of good points. And this thing could always be better, but does he ultimately sacrifice a big tax reduction for, you know, the vast majority of Americans because he wants to have this battle going on about, uh, you know, corporations benefiting more than, than smaller businesses. Well, we're definitely, unfortunately, in a letting the perfect be the enemy of the good situation. Yeah. The latest hot take that I saw right before I came in here was, according to Wisconsin Public Radio, he's still a no until some changes are made. So he's um, he hasn't softened that position, according to that report. And, um, but I happen to agree with Ola. And when it comes down to it, I don't think you can let this moment pass by. The stakes here are astronomical. Just, I mean, this is a You got to just get back to the table. Right. And the, the last time the tax code was reformed was before I was born. That's 31 years ago. I mean, this is a possible inflection point. Either they, they do something serious with taxes, show that they can govern, not just the Republicans, but Washington, D.C., and you can get the economy fired up and you can fix a lot of the problems we're talking about with Medicare, Social Security, structural deficits, uh, unfunded liabilities, and this $1.5 trillion CBO number that I contend nobody really cares that much about. And most of all, you can take less money from people out of their pocket, which is ultimately what it's all about. So here's a sad, depressing fun fact for you as oh, we close no. out this segment. I have socks older than you. And that <laughs> oh, means I, I have socks older than the last time we reformed <laughs> the tax code, which means one of two things. I'm getting really old or I need new socks. Well, those are some really serious socks if they haven't worn holes in them yet. <laughs> you know, tell me where you got them. And hopefully you're not wearing them is all. You know. Well, I did uh, just, just finish up the Thanksgiving basketball game. I got the gym socks on. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Sorry uh, about right. that. Um, so uh, another thing coming up uh, soon, next Wednesday, as a matter of fact, December 6th, the McIver Institute and the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty are very happy to welcome Guy Benson, political political editor for townhall.com, Fox News contributor, of course, and a, a very, very smart guy and a millennial. So someone else who may not have been around or was just barely born last time they reformed the tax code and a great voice for conservatism. 
uh, co-author of the book End of Discussion, which just got rebooted, and he'll be talking about uh, the silencing of uh, free speech, the growing threat to free speech throughout society. Uh, right here uh, in Madison at the Monono Terrace. Uh, that's 11.30 again on next Wednesday, December 6th. So you can email info at mciverinstitute.com for more information on how to attend. But it's, yeah. it is free, free lunch. Guy Benson's just a funny guy, uh, funny guy, um, you know, and, and just really smart. The book is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. But this will be a very engaging conversation, and we expect that there will be a lot of good questions uh, because we know our readers are about the smartest people on the face of the earth. They always ask us good questions. I don't know why they wouldn't ask Guy Benson, who has been on the front lines of the, the free speech battle in this country. I'm, I'm sure that there will be a lot of good questions for him coming up next Wednesday. Now, a question for you guys as somebody who will be far, far from the event and uh, on vacation next week, quite frankly. I'm turning my cell phone off, guys. Please don't call. That's sure. all right. You know, we all need to unplug every now and then. We are a touch jealous, by the way. <laughs> so if somebody isn't able to make the event, do they have a chance at uh, catching up, finding out what Guy talked about? We will definitely be following up. We're not going to miss an opportunity to re uh, report on what he talked about. Mm -hmm. But we're also, we'll also be on Twitter, and uh, we'll see. You know, we have to decide yet, actually. But um, we're not going to miss any opportunity. And one thing I will throw in there, I did meet Guy Benson once at a, at a kind of a smaller, intimate kind of group gathering of other communications directors, and he's a really engaging speaker. So... Uh, I highly, highly recommend that you come and listen to what, he has, what he's got to say. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be very, very good. All right, now we turn to the segment of the podcast where you're always helpful, always spot on. MacGyver staff take a turn at being a Sunday morning talking head, a prognosticator. Who is playing the part of Todd Chuck today? <laughs> Uh, that'd that's, be you. That's the alexic and uh, uh, dyslexic NBC the, channel. The dyslexic. Well, um, we don't have Nancy Pelosi in the room, so there won't be anybody for you to fluster with a with a <laughs> not all that difficult question. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're 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 the you're Chuck Todd today. Um, so I'll start off. The win today for me is is for people who are skeptics of this climate alarmism business. Goes back. Uh, you know, we talked about 1986. This goes back to like 1970. You've had climate alarmists for for decades and decades saying that. I mean, literally by you know, grandly pronouncing in, in the most grandiose terms that by the by by 1989 there'll be so much smog, not a single ray of sunshine is going to reach the surface of the planet, and all life is going to die, and the entire biosphere will be withered away and destroyed. And then, of course, you know, the, the glaciers are going to melt, et cetera. Of course, none of that has come true. And now we have, uh, this, is, this is via the, uh, the Daily Signal. You have a 16-year NASA veteran scientist, uh, Hel uh, Doiron. I probably butchered his name. But he is saying that all this alarmism is exactly what it sounds like. Garbage in, garbage out is the, is the phrase he uses. So uh, we've, we kind of knew that. But the quote that I really liked by him was that he says, the scientific method requires that your hypothesis and theories be confirmed by physical data. Computer models are not physical data, although I think in many, many in academia don't understand that. So this is, sounds like a guy who uh, understands science, um, maybe unlike Al Gore. 
How refreshing is that? You know, how many times have we seen the numbers were not correct? As the article notes, garbage in, garbage out. You get out what you put in. And if you have garbage numbers, that's what you're going right. to get out of here. I just wish we could have a legitimate, real study from the climate change alarmist. And we'll take that for what it is. But we, there's so much in the way of politics. And there's so much in the way of, face it, there's so much in the way of industries, green industries benefiting that they have too many people at the trough to try to get real good numbers in and real good numbers out. That's what this is all. There's a lot of industry and a lot of money at stake for certain people. So big, uh, big win if you're a skeptic of climate alarmism, which I think most people are. My loss uh, of the week is, uh, is the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a story last week that took a really cheap pot shot at uh, one representative, Shannon Zimmerman, who was running for state senate. Yeah. Uh, he made a joke, and I, you know, it wasn't a funny joke, but it was a joke. Uh, this is, so this is a guy who uh, invented a software translation, uh, a software that translate, you know, that does translation. Mm -hmm. And he's a successful businessman from it, and it was 2013, I believe it was, and he was asked, you know, what's the hardest language to translate? Well, he said women. Something to that effect. Wah, 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 wah. Come on. That, yeah, I mean, it's so ha ha, it's a funny joke. I mean, okay, the article really tried to put this into the same category as the really deplorable treatment of women that we're seeing by some very high profile people. Right. And I found that to be just, I just found that to be a major miss. No moral equivalence, are you there, guys? Right. It's not it's a funny just, joke, but I mean, he's, it's it's definitely not Al Franken. No, or it's a Roy joke Moore that territory. men and women turn all the time. And it, what, what was noted in the piece, uh, which also quoted one Wisconsin now as a legitimate source for you know objectiveness in this argument, and it is all. It's a moral equivalency issue. That's the really depressing. Uh, disgusting thing is that this story tries to make an equivalent connection to something that is um, referenced in men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's right. the same kind of thing we've been talking about since men and women existed. You know, the communication barrier sometimes right. and how we right. see things. And, and Shannon Zimmerman is not the first to joke about it and he won't be the last unless the, you know, the, the chilling squad from the everything is offensive movement comes in and shuts it down. That's I mean, right. how, it, how does this equate to the actions that we've seen from Hollywood or from uh, you know, po politics out in the federal government? Yeah, to wrap up this issue, quite frankly, trying to tie it to the rest of the sexual assault accusations and cases that we've been seeing in the media a lot lately, it belittles the rest of it. Do better, guys. Here, here. Well said, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I just have a quick one. I have my loser of the week. Speaking of, on the same topic, Nancy Pelosi going on the Sunday circuit. Jeez. I'm not exactly sure what she said, and I'm not sure she knows what she, knows she said. What she said. But it was, it was a, I don't know if I can call it a full-throated, but it was some kind of a defense of, uh, of politicians on her side of the aisle 
who have been caught in uh, sexual misconduct, not just allegations, but found to have committed actual sexual misconduct. And settled for it and with taxpayer dollars, Yeah, she right? was talking about yeah. John Conyers. Mm -hmm. That's right. Who has now been, I, I believe, billed as Congressman Underpants. It's every day there's something that's just awful coming out of Washington, D.C. involving this issue. But the worst thing beyond the allegations of misconduct and abuse, when you have the minority leader in the House defending this activity for and with explanations that are really quite inconceivable. That's right. Now, wrapping up this segment, I'm going to bring it back to the state of Wisconsin after spending a little bit of time uh, out there in the swamp in D.C. Uh, for this week, both my win and my loss are in the Racine area. Uh, so last year, Racine was uh, one of the five failing school districts on the Wisconsin State Report Cards. This year, they rose out of that ranking and got two stars, meeting few expectations. Now, why is this important other than, of course, the future of the kids in that area? A couple different reasons. Had Racine Unified again been named failing this year, that would have triggered a referendum for next fall, posing the question to the people of that area as to whether or not they would want to split up that district. And the district is absolutely bent on not facing that. Exactly, yeah. And that's one thing that we're going to spend a lot of time digging into these next couple weeks. So stay tuned. Go to MacGyverInstitute.com. We're really going to be publishing a ton of stuff on this. Now, one thing that you may not know about Racine Unified is that the district is made up of the city of Racine and multiple surrounding areas, smaller villages. It's a district with more than 18,000 students. And they've gone to referendum on this issue before. And it's a hot button issue. They are very deeply divided. One thing we know, the administrators of that district were desperate to get this one star failing designation monkey off their back, so to speak. Now, this week, those administrators can breathe easy uh, knowing that they're not going to be facing a referenda a year from now as to whether or not they want to start uh, picking apart their kingdom a little bit, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And as for the loss, it's the kids, as usual. 23% of kids at uh, Racine Unified are proficient in English language arts, 21% in math. They did see some small improvements over last year. That's a good sign. But going back to what we said earlier, you got to call a spade a spade, guys. Otherwise, what chance do you have at really improving? Yeah. Right. That's a great way to, to bookend the show. Absolutely. Very important. I will note this, that uh, I probably at this table am the biggest gainer of the week, not loser <laughs> after the debauchery that was the Thanksgiving feast. I got to get back to the why. I got to get back to the treadmill. I had two Thanksgiving dinners myself, too, So I and soup. I made some delicious soup, but that's, uh, that's for a different podcast. Co no soup for you. Cooking with MacGyver. We'll, we'll launch that soon. <laughs> Well, a uh, great way to end the show on on, uh, on the educational note. We're, we're, we'll keep an eye on on MacIver's website for Ola's forthcoming story about Racine. And uh, thank you again for listening to the MacIver Report, Wisconsin this week. We hope you're still awake, unless of course you're looking for some help nodding off. And in that case, I'd recommend Zequil. But if you're awake, not driving, off the elliptical machine, or just need a distraction at work, we hope you'll sign up for the MacIver Report podcast now on SoundCloud and iTunes, and coming soon to Stitcher and TuneIn. Never miss an episode, and as always, please share the MacGyver Report with your friends and family. 
I'm Chris Rochester for the MacGyver team. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all. <laughs>